To him I leave it all. To the believer, that means that everything that we have, everything, even the things that we hold most dear, we must hold with a loose grip. May mean a beloved husband, may mean a beloved wife, a son, daughter, mother, father, maybe a job, maybe all our wealth, maybe our health. To him, I leave it all. A man in history that demonstrated this tremendously well was George Mueller, the great British evangelist, the great abolitionist, the great missionary to the orphans, held everything, and in his case, even financially with a loose hand. By virtue of God's blessing in his ministry, uh, to the orphans in particular, millions of dollars, even very long time ago, passed through the hands of George Mueller. Yet, when he died, he died almost entirely penniless. The interesting thing is, though, that was by volition, that was by choice. And even more interesting, more telling, is that for people that would pass George Mueller in the street, they wouldn't look at him and say, oh, there is a downcast man, there is a sullen man, there is a poverty-stricken man. Rather, they would look at him and they would say, there is an educated man, there is a gentleman, a gentleman. And why is this? George Mueller gave the answer why. He said the reason why he took great care to not look haggard and downcast was, quote, I would never want someone to look at me and think I serve a master who's not generous. Beloved, please open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Haggai, the third last book in the Old Testament, the tenth of what is commonly called the minor prophets, not minor in importance, but minor in length. The first of the three post-exilic prophets who came after the return of the nation of Israel to the promised land. Uh, Israel had been taken into captivity in the uh, 19th century before Christ by Egypt. They returned after some 430 years. They were taken into captivity uh, in the 8th century by Assyria. They were taken into captivity in the 6th century, again before Christ, in the hands of Babylon. And then a righteous king after the empire of Babylon was taken over by the empire of the Medo-Persians, the good king Cyrus, good from a human perspective by virtue of what he did, gave a decree to the nation of Israel that she may return to the promised land and rebuild the temple. Uh, The temple began rebuilding. A man named Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the high priest, took 50,000 people back to the land. In 536 B.C. in Jerusalem, they began rebuilding the temple, but then, and they laid the foundation, but then by virtue of opposition from the surrounding tribes, they began to stop the work, or they should, I should say they stopped the work. And then indifference and complacency set in. For 16 years, they did nothing. They were focused on their own comfort. They were distracted. They had lost the main priority of what there are to be about as the children of God. And it was in this backdrop that God raised up a man, a man named Haggai, and sent him to the people. Haggai prophesied in 520 BC from August 29th to December 18th, about three and a half months. And he was a man of one message, 
rebuild the temple. Chapter 1, which we looked at last week, there are four words of Haggai. The first word of Haggai is all of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, there's three words. We're going to look at the first part of the second word of Haggai here this morning. But in chapter 1, we saw that Haggai preached and told the lazy, complacent, self-centered, self-satisfying people to repent and rebuild the temple. And out of the rubble of the ruin of the temple comes the restoration of the remnant of the people. The same God that moved the heart of King Cyrus some 16 years earlier stirs the heart of the remnant of the people in the land and they begin to work. The first word of Haggai, beloved, was a word of rebuke to a distracted people to the stagnant people who became a stirred-up people. The second word of Haggai is a word of encouragement to a discouraged people. And what Haggai does in verses 1 through 9, the second word of the Lord that came by the hand of Haggai to the people, is he points them backwards to the past in verses 1 through 3. Then he directs their attention upwards in the present in verses 4 and 5. And then lastly, he points them forwards to the future to anticipate what God will do. Now, this first word, or excuse me, the second word is so packed, we're going to break it into two messages and just handle the first two, the past and the present in this morning. Beloved, listen as I read Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts." As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Beloved, this is the word of God which has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. As I mentioned, we're going to cover verses 1 through 5. That is our text here this morning. And the proposition, basically, Haggai gives them two encouragements. He says, remember the past and redeem the present. Remember the past and redeem the present. What he's doing is he's bringing this word of encouragement to a discouraged people to strengthen the hands of the people of God in the work of God 
by looking to the word of God. So let's look at this first encouragement. Remember the past. The 19th century British poet William Wordsworth said, let us learn from the past to profit for the present and live better in the future. That's not a bad, almost summary purpose statement of what we have here. Beloved, the first word of the Lord came again on August 29th in the year 520 B.C. Unlike Jeremiah, who preached 55 years with no record of repentance, unlike Micah, who preached 20 years before there was repentance, Haggai preached, and 23 days later, the people repent and begin to rebuild. Now, on the 21st of the seventh month, it's only 26 days later, not even a full month after they began to rebuild, and the people are becoming discouraged and need another kick in the be I mean, need another encouragement to be about the work. In the screw tape letters, the screw tape letters record the dialogue of a senior demon screw tape with his junior apprentice Wormwood. And there came a time when the junior demon Wormwood was very dissatisfied and, and grumbling and not happy because all his strategies, his tactics weren't working. And Screwtape said to Wormwood, have you tried discouragement? Because discouragement always works. Beloved, what we see here is, again, only 26 days after this repentance, only 26 days plus after the people that were this people, in chapter 1, verse 2, become the remnant in 1.12 and 1.14 and in our passage here this morning. Haggai nips, excuse me, nips the problem in the bud. He level sets the situation. He deals with the encroaching discouragement. Haggai is a man of one message. He is a man of conviction and fortitude. He doesn't mess around. He gets right in their kitchen where he needs to because Haggai knows that faith has to learn and faith has to grow. Faith has to learn how to overcome. Faith has to learn how to persevere. On this side of glory, on this side of glory, we're all a work in process. On that side of glory, the, our faith becomes sight. Our hope is realized. But in the here and now, we need reminders. In his commentary on Haggai, John Calvin said, Hence also we may learn how necessary it is for us to be constantly stimulated for Satan can, find, can easily find a thousand impediments by which he may turn us aside from the right course. Except God often repeats his exhortations to keep us awake. Beloved, on the 21st of the seventh month. Now, to the man, to the woman in Israel, when Haggai says, when they read those words on the 21st of the seventh month, that would be like saying in our culture on the third Thursday of November or on the 4th of July or on December 25th. The 21st of the seventh month was the last day of the week-long Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was the seventh and last of the seven feasts God had instituted in the nation of Israel in Leviticus chapter 23. And the Feast of Booths is the last feast on the Jewish calendar. And this particular day is the last day of this last feast. 
the Feast of Booths was one of the three feasts where, according to Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. So for a week, the nation of Israel, the men would come to Jerusalem and the families and the people of Israel would live in temporary booths. And what they were doing, what they are instructed by God to do in this feast was to celebrate, to remember, to celebrate the end of the autumn harvest and God's provision, to celebrate the ingathering of the crops, beginning with the first fruits, and to remember and to celebrate their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, in particular, God's miraculous provision for a nation of some 2 million people wandering in that wilderness. That is the importance and intents of this. So Haggai's audience now for his second word is much bigger than his original audience. When he gave his first word back on what we would have of August 29th, that was basically the people that were in the promised land. But now there would be pilgrims that have come for the Feast of Booths, and so his audience is much bigger. And what we see here He says, speak now. God says to Haggai, speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the remnant of the people. Very similar to the uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 that we saw before. But now he's speaking not just even initially at the beginning of this word to the leaders. He's also speaking to the remnant of the people. And beloved, what Haggai is doing here as he's pointing their attention back to the past is he spurs a realistic appraisal of the present in the light of the past. <clears throat> and he does this with three rhetorical questions. You'll see three questions in verse 3, none of which need an answer because the answers are obvious and self Evident. Now, what's interesting, when he goes from verse 2 to verse 3, he's pivoting from the leaders and the remnant. Now he's pivoting to the older people that are in the land at that time. Maybe you're in a position or you've had before when an older person comes back to you and says, well, back in my day or back in the day. And you think, oh boy, here it comes. Even, even young people are getting in on this. The 20-year-old 20, 20 posts something TBT, Throwback Thursday. I mean, how much ground do you have to even throw back, Sonny? (laughs) But you see, that's what's at work here. And what he says is, who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? That's how we know right now he's focusing in on the older generation. The temple was destroyed again in 586 B.C. by Babylon. Back in 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar of Assyria looted the temple. So the people to whom he's speaking right now in particular are at least 70-plus years old or even 80-plus years of age. Turn, if you would, for a moment back to Ezra chapter 3. Because why is it? What's the background? Why is Haggai addressing the older people in particular? Back in Ezra, you remember back in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 is where we were introduced to Cyrus. Uh, Chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Ezra, we see that it's the seventh month, so it's the same month again. But in verse 8 of Ezra 3, now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, so the year is 536 B.C., Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the rest of their brothers. Jeshua is the same as Joshua. 
the priests and the Levites and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and brothers of the Levites to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the building had laid, excuse me, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, again, this is 536 BC, their very beginning part of the return, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So 16 years earlier, the shouts of joy mingled with the tears of the mourning the shouts of joy of the younger mingled with the tears of mourning of the older. So, beloved, so is the case here. Sixteen years later, the discouragement from the older generation is spreading everywhere. It's spreading to the leaders and to the lay people. It's spreading to the people in the land, the 50,000, the remnant, and the pilgrims in the land for the Feast of Booths. Charles Spurgeon said, this is leaping forward to the church. He said, those complain first in our churches who have the least to do. The gift of grumbling is largely dispensed among those who have no other talents or who keep what they have wrapped up in a napkin. And in the case of Israel in the Promised Land, both in 536 BC and now 520 BC, it's the older people, the older generation that is bringing the discouragement. I remember when I was working out through some of the, through pretty much almost all of 2020 with my fitness coach, Zach Miller. And Zach made the observation that it's my age group, it's people in their 50s where you really start to see a wide divergence between uh, of health and fitness. Because in one case it could be a discipline issue, in other cases it could be you start feeling the pain. Some pain is weakness leaving the body, not all pain is weakness leaving the body, but some is. And he said, it's just interesting you kind of see that. And I thought of that this morning because so also it seems like very often there can be a wider divergence in the older generation between the discouragers and the encouragers. Now, let me say this. I preach the word of God as a passage comes. This is not Santan Bible Church. Our beloved older generation of Santan Bible Church, almost to a man or woman, are encouragers. But this is the word of God. This is the context. And that is a dynamic to be sure. It's something to watch for. Continuing on verse 3, Haggai 2, and how do you see it now? Second rhetorical question. Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Now, this temple comparison that he's talking about here, he's not comparing a house in Paradise Valley and a house in Florence. 
He's comparing the same house. He's comparing a, the gutted, ruined skeleton of a house with its former pristine state. And even as we think of this, we often say and we often refer to Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple and then lastly Herod's temple. So how many temples are there? Three, two, one? According to God, there's one temple. That's why this is a call to rebuild. There's one temple. In fact, this temple here in our text is literally this house. There's one temple, one house of God back at that time. It was a physical temple at that point. It's a different matter now. Also, beloved, the issue the people were facing in this temple comparison of its past state and its present state. It's not a size issue. Cyrus' decree for the building was very comparable in size to Solomon's temple. It's the external grandeur and magnificence. The gold in Solomon's temple, uh, Solomon had 666 talents of gold with 1,058 ounces per talent, and the price of gold on Friday, I checked, was $1,792. That would amount to about $1.3 billion of gold that Solomon had at his disposal. That's what the people were looking at. And the problem here is a heart issue. It's not a resource issue. It's a spirit of defeat, a spirit of despondency, a spirit of demoralization, a spirit of discouragement that had creeped in and infected, in this case, the hearts of the olders, but it was spreading to the rest of the people. So Haggai exposes what's fermenting in the heart. Haggai takes the elephant on the table and he cooks it for lunch right before them. Because, beloved, seeing can be deceiving. Seeing can be deceiving. The reference to the former glory in Haggai here, he's not talking about the glory as God would see it. He's talking about the glory as man sees it. And we know from 1 Samuel, God does not see as man sees. God looks at the heart. The man, people, the people at this time look at the grandeur of the edifice. God is focused on his indwelling presence. And the situation here, beloved, see if this may resonate with you at times in your life. The people of God have taken their eyes off of God and are stumbling or beginning to stumble as a result. In the turn of the, well, in turn from the 19th century to 20th century, the siege of Ladysmith in the Second Boer War from November 1899 to February of 2000 in the township of Ladysmith Natal in what we now would look at as South Africa. A civilian, a civilian, excuse me, a civilian during this war was arrested. He was court-martialed and he was imprisoned for one year. What was his crime? Discouragement. He wasn't, he didn't take up arms and fight for the enemy. He wasn't disloyal to his country. What this man was doing is he was going around to the soldiers and he was spreading discouragement into their ears. He was a discourager in a critical time. Beloved, the application for you and me, the application for you and I as a child in Christ is given by the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage 
one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. And that is a good characteristic of the elders at Santan Bible Church. So, beloved, the Word of God tells us to remember the past. The second encouragement from Haggai to the nation, to the church of God, as we would apply it to ourselves, is redeem the present. Redeem the present. Colossians 4, verse 5, God says through Paul to the church in Colossae, the New American Standard says, make the most of the opportunity. The original Greek language literally says, redeem the time. Redeem, buy back, purchase, avail yourself, make the most of the time. Carpe diem, seize the day, seize the present, or redeem our present right here, right now. And what God does in verses 4 and 5 is he gives three commands through Haggai so that you and I would be galvanized with encouragement rather than paralyzed by discouragement, no matter what may come our way. He says, be strong, work, and fear not. Let's look at this first command stated three times in case lest we miss it in verse 4. Be strong. Now, New American Standard says, take courage. The ESV says, be strong. Be strong is a little more accurate translation. So I'm going to read it with be strong. Verse 4, but now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, be strong. Be strong. This would include, it's interesting, he shifts from the leaders to the remnant to the older people, back to the leaders, now to all the people of the land. So all the people of land here would include the remnant and the pilgrims that are present by virtue of the Feast of Booths. And it's interesting, the Hebrew grammar of be strong in all three appearances, and by the way, Basically, what Haggai is doing here, what God is doing is he's meeting the three rhetorical questions, or he's answering the three rhetorical questions in verses 2 and 3 with the, this threefold command of be strong, be strong, be strong, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people of the land. And what's interesting is the grammar of the Hebrew verb is a singular imperative. It's stated as a singular in all three cases. Sure, Zerubbabel's a singular uh, Joshua is singular, but all the people of the land, the grammar is singular, meaning that there is corporate responsibility and there is individual responsibility. Even all you people of the Lord, all of you, all the church together, yet each one of us has individual responsibility to be strong. And beloved, this command from God to be strong. It's very common in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in the Old Testament. For example, very often God commands the nation of Israel to be strong. Moses says to Israel as they're getting ready to come into the land that God had promised to them in Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or tremble at them. God says to Joshua, as Joshua is getting ready to take the mantle of leadership from Moses. I mean, Joshua was a capable dude, but Moses, I mean, that would that'd be enough to make you shake in your boots. God tells Joshua, Joshua 1.9, be strong and be courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. 
Second, excuse me, First Chronicles 28, verse 20, David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear or be dismayed. Hezekiah said to the nation of Israel who were fearing the Assyrians in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 7, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the multitude which is in him. Or, as we were so blessed as we were going through Ephesians and we had that magnificent pericope of Scripture, that passage of Scripture from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 on the holy war of God, the spiritual war and the armor of the Lord. God begins it through Paul to the Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong and know that your strength and my strength comes from outside of us. It comes from the Lord. Be empowered in the Lord. Now, in the context back here in Haggai 2, verse 4, as we go to verse 5, to borrow an illustration from competing fitness industries, God doesn't command us to be bodybuilders. He doesn't command us to be spiritually strong merely so we can preen up on a stage. God is commanding us, spiritually speaking, to be power lifters, to be Spartan racers, to be endurance athletes. As we go from the first command to the second command, he says, be strong and work. It's not just the mere state of being strong. Do something with your strength. Do something with your courage. Work. And The situation here is even though the foundation had been laid 16 years earlier, after 16 years, they would still need to clear the rubble from the land. They would still need to do an assessment of the strength of the foundation, the strength of the stones, the strength of the walls. They would need to gather and harness the workmen for the job. There's much to be done. And to compound the situation, during this 26-day period, again, this second word comes on the 21st day of the seventh month. Well, on the first day of the seventh month, that was the Feast of Tabernacles, On the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. And then on the 15th of the seventh month, that began the week-long celebration of the Feast of Booths. All of those which no work is to be done, coupled with the Sabbath. So there's multiple elements here that come into way. And what God says is be strong, again, and work. And by the way, This work is the centerpiece of this whole second word. Again, Haggai is a man of one message, rebuild the temple. Work here, this command from God is the centerpiece of the whole word and even the centerpiece of these three commands because he says, be strong and work. Then conversely on the back end, work and fear not. Work and fear not. Now, one might ask reasonably, why? why? Why should I be strong? How can I be strong? How can I take courage? How can you expect me to work? You don't know my situation. You don't know the opposition. You don't understand the meager supplies. You don't under- understand the hopelessness. You don't understand my frailty. Beloved, the remedy for the fearful and the faithless is to lift your eyes off of the discouraging circumstance and lift your eyes off of them. Look upwards to the presence of the Lord with you and the promise of God to you. Beloved, look to the presence of God. He says, 
for I am with you. Be strong and work, for I am with you. This is God's merciful, guiding presence. And by the way, all four examples that I gave before of Moses to Israel, of God to Joshua, of David to Solomon, and of Hezekiah to Israel, every single one of those commands to be strong are followed by this promise of God's presence. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you, nor will he forsake you. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When Father David gave the words of encouragement and challenge to his son Solomon, 1 Chronicles 28.20, For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And Hezekiah to Israel, 2 Chronicles 32, for the one who is with us is greater than the one with him, the one with the enemy that's with the king of Assyria. Beloved, this is the empowering presence of the Lord. The same empowering presence. And in fact, on this side of the cross, under the new covenant, with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, you are even in a better position to be empowered by the Lord. And then verse 4 ends, says the Lord of hosts. 29 times out of these 38 verses, we see the formula of revelation, of some form of thus saith the Lord, says the Lord of hosts. If the God of the mighty armies, if the God of the mighty armies doesn't speak, we don't exist. Well, there's a third command. He says, be strong and work and fear not. Verse 5, as for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. And we'll take these clauses in reverse order. Do not fear. Fear not. The first and last commands, be strong and fear not, are almost the same. And beloved, the situation is faith and fear, fear and faith. Everybody, every man, saved or unsaved, has both. Good or bad, right or wrong, weak or strong. Right fear is the fear of God. Wrong fear is the fear of anything else. And beloved, Weak faith produces wrong fear. Right fear produces strong faith. And a fearful Christian, I would say, is close, a very close second to a hypocritical Christian in terms of doing damage to the testimony of Christ. And if we need an example of how significant of a sin is it for a child of God, or how how significant of a sin is any kind of wrong fear. In Revelation 21, verse 8, uh, when John has the vision of heaven and the beauty and the glory and the presence with Christ forever and ever, where there is no more pain, there are no more tears, there is no more sorrow or mourning. Conversely, he gives a picture of those that are held outside the city, those who are in hell. In Revelation 21, verse 8, he says, and look at the first of the list that he gives for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And again, the first in that list is cowardly. 
The wrong kind of fear, beloved, is not a small sin. But back here in Haggai 2 verse 5, he says, My spirit is abiding in your midst. My spirit is abiding in your midst. Isaiah 63, verses 11 through 14, God records through Isaiah how his spirit was with the nation of Israel even as they were being led out of captivity of Egypt. Nehemiah 9, verse 20, Nehemiah says, you gave your good spirit to instruct them, to instruct your people. One point here we'll bring out, it's interesting, he says, my spirit will be abiding in your midst. He doesn't say my spirit will be indwelling in you. The indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is a fulfillment of the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31, that is a new testament, that is a new covenant, that took place at Pentecost. What we have here is when we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, it was a theocratic empowerment ministry of the Holy Spirit. David's fear, when David repented of his great sins of adultery and murder in Psalm 51, he said, take not thy spirit from me. David's fear is not our fear. The New Testament church, we fear the quenching of the spirit. We fear grieving the spirit. We don't fear the removal of the spirit. But back on task. And again, that's just one more statement of this empowering presence of God with you. What about the promise? What, what is a promise worth? It depends. Who's the one promising? How good is his or her word? How does the one promising frame the promise? Does he say, I will do this? Or does he say, well, if this, then that? Beloved, verse 5, right at the beginning, look to the promise of God. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt. Literally, the promise which I cut with you. The, the making of a promise, the making of a covenant in the Old Testament was more a cutting than a writing. For example, Exodus 24, verse 8, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has cut with you. Now, to be sure, it's kind of interesting. There's, there's almost like a telescopic dimension here. The immediate reference would be when God took the nation out of Israel. Even as I mentioned, Isaiah 63, Isaiah remembers how the Spirit of God was with the nation of Israel when God rescued them from their Egyptian captivity. However, God also took Abraham. He was Abram at that point, Genesis 13. God took Abram out of Egypt. Abram came out of Egypt. And it was in Genesis 15, out of Abram came out of Egypt that God cut his covenant with Abraham. The covenant that God cut with the nation of Israel at the time of the Exodus was a conditional covenant. In Exodus 19, God says to the people, if you do this, then I will do this. And then Later on, after God says that, the people say, we will do this. But in the other five biblical covenants, they're unilateral, they're unconditional. God just says, I will do this. And in Genesis 15, when God cut his Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, he gave a beautiful picture of this. Genesis 15, verses 17 and 18. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. 
And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham, excuse me, with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. That's the land that the post-exilic people, the remnant, and the pilgrims are hearing this message from Haggai at that point in time. Abram is sleeping while God appeared as a smoking fire, as a smoking oven, and passed between the pieces. Beloved, God is swearing here by virtue of the cutting of the covenant. And the Lord doesn't swear by heaven, which is his throne. He doesn't swear by the earth, which is his footstool. The Lord swears by the virtue of his own person, by his very nature. That's why God tells Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And beloved, even when God, as, Abraham was, uh, as Abram was sleeping in Genesis 15, and God passed between the pieces, that's a demonstration that this covenant, this promise, is unilateral, unconditional, eternal, and irrevocable. Promise of God. Similar to what the Apostle Paul writes of in Romans 11, verse 29, the gifts and the calling of the Lord are irrevocable. Beloved, there is no greater encouragement than this. We have, beloved, you and I now, as we study to show ourselves approved with the handling of this beautiful, short, two-chapter letter of Haggai, great encouragement from the Lord for all of his people at all times, in every circumstance, whenever there's a great churning of history, of empires vanishing and new ones coming, beloved, the promise of God pierces through. I will, saith the Lord. And dear believer, God says in verses 6 through 9, I will, I will, I will, I will. All four of those promises that are coming next week are still future. Some of it, there's an already aspect of it, which we enjoy right here, right now. But the future that Haggai points the people of God at that time to is the same future that God points you and I to as well. It's based on the promise. All four I wills are based on the promise of God, the word of God. A promise, a word cut with his own shed blood at the cross. Don't miss next Sunday. Please join me as we go to the Lord prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. We thank you for the timeless truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that even when we are weak, even when we are frail, even when we're acting faithlessly, even when we are fearful, you are the one who holds our hand. You guide us. And when we trip, we're not hurled headlong because you watch over us, you care for us, and you give us words of encouragement even in the darkest of days. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we now sing. And all of your adopted children say, amen.